Hello, good afternoon. <laughs> okay, uh, let me just begin by introducing myself. Um, I go by Florence Moindi. I come from Kenya. Uh, I work with Life in Abundance. I am a medical doctor by profession and also by ministry. Uh, Life in Abundance serves among the poor and the vulnerable with local churches. And medical ministry is a major part of what we do. Based out of Nairobi, uh, Kenya, um, that's where we live as a family, and that's our headquarters for the ministry. We are working in several countries in Africa and also in the Caribbean. I am married uh, to Festus. We have uh, two grown uh, uh, sons, not fully grown, but getting there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just glad to be, to be with us in discussing about serving for sustainable impact. Allow me to open us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you um, expressing our interest that we would like to invest our lives in such a way that they count in eternity. And we thank you that we can pause in the midst of this conference to just see what can be of sustainable impact. Long after we have gone, what can continue to tell this story? We pray, Father, that as we interact with some facts, that they will translate into what we are doing. Um, as we discuss this afternoon, Father, that there may be um, a glory that rises to your holy name uh, because you know what you do and what you do, you do well. We invite your presence and we pray, Father, in our utterance, we will honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wanted to introduce some people who are working uh, with us in Life in Abundance. We have our U.S. office based here in, in Kentucky, actually just about 10 minutes drive from here. Uh, so we have, uh, we have these three guys here, um, Steve and uh, Steve and Jordan and Joy. Uh, they're involved with Life in Abundance. They're working full-time with that. And then on this table we have Jay. Um, I'm looking for Amy. Oh, Amy is back there. And then we have uh, Jonas. Uh, Jonas is our grants writer. And uh, who else is with Life in Abundance? I know we have James. James is one of our directors from Nairobi. Um, and then, yeah, all the partnerships we have with Southeast. We have been in partnership with Southeast for the last 21 years. Uh, so we just feel like this is home. And especially at this conference, just so much speaks to our ethos. All right, I'm going to... Um, make a quick presentation of uh, what we have learned, what I have learned in serving for sustainable impact, um, sort of just sharing my story with you, and then we will interact with that. I hope to, to go through it quickly so that we have some time at the end for questions, for interaction, and for you to speak into that. So I, I feel like what sometimes looks like failure or what sometimes confronts you in the midst of um, hard work, like when your head is down, uh, it's almost like it wakes you up to a new reality. Uh, sometimes God, I think, brings us to a point where we, we fail so that he can take over um, because sometimes we get so consumed 
with who we are and ourselves and our abilities, that he needs to allow those abilities to pause uh, for a time, and then he can speak into what he wants to do. Uh, I think that was my story. I went out as a missionary about 21 years ago, and I was very passionate about what I wanted to see happen in reference to the, to the poor and the vulnerable. And I went with this strong zeal as a type A personality um, to change the world, especially to change the, the world of the poor and the vulnerable. And um, I found myself in Ethiopia doing cross-cultural ministry because coming from Kenya, going into Ethiopia, so went, learned the language, and began to engage in a very poor community, uh, a leper community that was there. And at three years, after very hard work, I came to my knees. Um, I discovered that what I was feeling like is success was actually very minimal success, if any, and probably I was doing more damage than I was doing good. Uh, by that time, we were running a vulnerable street children ministry, and uh, we were planning for a Christmas vacation Bible school that was attracting 400 children, and it was going to be held at the backyard of our missionary house. I was also doing this community-based work. Uh, we had a lot of people that we were seeing, uh, several visits in the community clinic several times a week, and uh, it was focusing on a community of 5,000 people. Uh, plus, our kids were young that time, so I was also acting mother and also acting wife. Um, it, was, it was busy. I say acting because obviously I wasn't giving it my all. Uh, my hands were full and uh, not doing as much good to any of those responsibilities as I should. Um, so on Christmas Eve of 1999, uh, there, was, there was the urgent matter of we need to provide for the vacation Bible school that was coming up. Uh, so I woke up very early in the morning and went into downtown Addis, Addis Ababa, and I was going from bakery to bakery uh, collecting as much bread as I could so that we could have this vacation Bible school. We were going to serve a cup of tea and a piece of bread to children who were mainly homeless. Um, and those who had homes, their parents were dependent fully on begging, so it was more like they were living in shelters. So on my way back, um, back home, uh, driving through this slum area, because we were living very close to the, to the leper community, I came across something in the middle of the road. It was very early in the morning, so I couldn't see very properly, and I realized it was one of the lepers. It was a mother with a baby on her back, and she was lame. And she was making her way across the street, um, so walking very slowly. So I, I stopped, and I was, was sort of arrested there uh, to give her time to cross. And while I was there, I decided to look to see where she's coming from. And I looked on the side, and I realized she was actually coming from a trash pit, um, a trash pit in the middle of this destitute community at 6 a.m. in the morning uh, that she had been picking through that to, to find something to eat. Then I looked more closely at, at that, and I realized there were children. Um, there were children ages 5, 6, and 7, so early in the morning, going through the trash to pick something to eat. 
I had seen street children in my life because I grew up in Kenya. I actually grew up in a poor community. So street children were not a surprise to me. But I had just dismissed them as, you know, they are a nuisance or they, they choose to be that because they want the freedom. But this morning when they rushed over to the car to beg and I was held there because of what, is, what was in front of me, I had no choice but to sort of look at them straight in the face. And I realized, I realized they are real. I realized they were, they had stories. Um, they, were, they had names. They were desperate. They were afraid. Um, and they were eager to get something to eat. And I remember looking at them and wondering, what do you do? Uh, what do you do after seeing this? And I drove off from that scene um, just thinking something has to be done. Uh, just so overwhelmed with emotion and wondering, should I, should I have just given them the bread? Should I be reversing and going and inviting them to come home? Should they begin to live in our garage? And then this overwhelming feeling like, how can I take on another responsibility with, with the family, with the medical work that's going? And uh, can't God call other people to come and help? Um, Christmas Eve of 1999 was a very sad time for me because I was just going through all these considerations. And then it was almost like the light just dawned on me. I realized it wasn't going to be me responding to these children. Actually, my entire paradigm of ministry changed. I resolved that I wasn't going to take charge. In fact, it became very clear between me and God that it wasn't going to be me giving bread. I wasn't going to be opening an orphanage. And even the work that I was doing, the medical work and the vacation Bible school, it became very clear to me that all that had to stop. And I realized it was not going to be me any longer investing in these things. The church, the local church, was going to be the one needing to take responsibility. And from that time on, I developed a new strategy. And I realized it was going to be a strategy that lifts up the local church to become relevant to the needs and also to be the one that is Christ in that place. Other than me beginning to look like I'm Christ in that place. Um, instead of me taking the glory and me um, attracting people to me, it would be the local church uh, being made to be the bride of Christ and becoming attractive because they are meeting those felt needs. It was this church that was going to be helping the vulnerable not just to give them bread, but to become empowered in their own community. It would be a strategy that bestows dignity to the least of these. And uh, speaks of these people are brothers and sisters of Christ. It would be one that not only just helps the immediate, but sort of asks questions like, why are street children there? And what is the church doing about this? What is the government doing about this? And what systems are making these children end up in the street? And how can we address those root causes so that we are not just meeting the felt need? Uh, what occurred to me was, actually in all cases, from clinical medicine to developmental needs, 
We could be dealing with a, a roof that's leaking, it's flooding an area, and we continually are just drying the floor from the, the leak. But unless we go up there and repair the leak, we can do the drying of the floor for the rest of our lives, and there will be no impact. Um, we will have treated people every day, every day, and when we leave, we'll just leave them in the same place. Unless things in the community are changed, unless there's education uh, being done, unless there are things that are preventing what the need is from continuing uh, to recur. And that is not as simple as uh, giving bread. It's not as simple as running a clinic and treating people from the diseases they present with. Um, it's, it's deeper than that. I'll tell you about the strategy that we, we took on as, as a ministry from then on. But first, I wanted to just mention very clearly that it does mean we equip the local church. Uh, so that what we have, the skills that we have, the knowledge that we have, is filtered down to a level that the church can embrace and take a hold of and run with, and we begin to, to face back and allow the church to be the one that is involved. I also want to say the strategy we developed, uh, we do that for three years, um, the model of Jesus, that he was able to equip his disciples within three years and step back and tell them, go make disciples of all nations. So sort of empowering the church within a three-year period of discipleship. And at the end of that, we are able to step back and encourage the church to take on the responsibility of ministry to the least of these that are around them. We've been doing this now for 21 years, and uh, the question comes, what happens after we leave? Because we've partnered with churches, you know, last year alone, we partnered with more than 100 churches in different communities. So the question is, what happens after the three-year period and we leave? Do these churches continue to serve, or do they go back to the same old routine of ignoring their God-given mandate in these communities? That was our question also, and although we knew and were in touch with some of the communities where we have worked, and we knew this strategy works, we did not have data that would prove that this model actually works, and to what extent it works. So last year we had a foundations meeting, um, foundations that support the Ministry of Life in Abundance had come together, and they expressed the need to, to find out in, in a in a research that would give them that data, uh, asking the questions, does this work? So we identified an external um, agency uh, to come and do that study, and uh, they were supposed to come and answer the question of, does actually this work? Uh, does it work? Is, can we generate some data that can show it works? So their mandate was to f first to come and find out with quantifiable data, uh, the model of life in abundance, how it works in the short term and in the long term. Does it achieve output, outcome, and eventually impact? And also to find out with data to answer the hypothesis, can this model of transformational development be implemented through the local church uh, in a community and result in development that is sustained 
and can even that development be expanded uh, by the same community to other areas? And I want you to know it was, it was fearful to invite an organization to come and look at our work uh, because it's almost like you don't want to know. Uh, and at the same time, you want to know. Um, and then you're hoping they will go to the success that you know and be able to document that. So it took courage. Uh, but we felt we don't want to continue doing this um, if it doesn't work. So they came and uh, they looked at a list of all the communities that we had worked in and moved on and identified randomly six communities that they would evaluate. And they were looking at, at several things to evaluate in that community. They were looking at the economic empowerment. They were looking at community health. And in community health, it was all the elements of primary health care. They wanted to look at education, especially in reference to early childhood development. And they were looking at the environmental impact, um, the social engagement, and the spiritual transformation that occurs and is sustained after we have left. The team was also going to be evaluating several levels uh, of impact. They were looking at the people we worked with, where they changed. And then did they spread that change to other, to, to other people within their own community? So, for example, like if we worked with Southeast, um, were the members of Southeast transformed? And did they change the people in this area um, around Southeast? And then the third part they were looking at was, did they export this knowledge to other communities where we had not worked? Um, did the churches that we partnered with uh, become missional uh, and going on to other places? They were measuring this impact after several years, and um, they had the, the usual measures of, of impact versus the usual measures that we would use for output or outcome. Because we do monitor output and outcome. We go in with a proposal. We have a report. But, you know, the question was what happens after we have left the impact. Well, to our great joy and some relief, uh, the data analysis did show several things that were uh, very, very encouraging. First, they showed that there was sustainable impact on the initial recipients of the model. And it showed that our target beneficiaries were sustainably transformed after the three-year plan that several years later, 20 years later, they were still continuing um, in the newfound hope, in the newfound uh, life uh, that we bring through the, the strategy. The second thing that they found was the model does have sustained impact in the community where the recipients live. Um, they've impacted their community, they've affected their neighborhoods, and after we leave, they continue to show that sustainable impact. And then the last thing that they showed was in three of the communities that they, they evaluated, these people had moved on, had become missional, and had gone to different areas to spread the model of life in abundance. Um, almost like they had become um, people who can help us in this strategy. Uh, almost like if life in abundance stopped working, these people almost had generated a movement that they are continuing to reach others uh, in places where we hadn't worked. Uh, 
this model, and I want us to just get this so clearly, this model totally contravenes conventional development. Uh, it also contravenes humanitarian work uh, because the impact uh, of humanitarian work or development dissipates. Um, it's obvious, like if you go in with a clinic and you set up a clinic, so long as you're there, uh, there will be sustained influence that is being noted as far as um, incidence and even maybe prevalence. But after you move away, uh, that begins to, to pick up again. The incidence begins to increase and uh, prevalence increases. So it actually does contravene what happens in the conventional way uh, in that it was continuing to increase. The longer we had gone, the more the impact had been uh, in the communities where, where we had been. There was that increased impact over time. I was, I was personally amazed, uh, but honestly, I wasn't surprised. Why I wasn't surprised is because God's leading is, is so sure, and um, he stays faithful. Uh, when, when I did come to my knees and when he did prescribe what he wants as a strategy for mission, um, he's faithful in what he prescribes, and he watches over it uh, to cause it to succeed. So the results, much as they were surprising and much as they were amazing, uh, they just referenced a God who knows what he does. I want to share with you two, two stories, um, one of which is in one of the communities that we had worked in. Makueni, it's a community in Kenya. It has a population of 50,000 people, and maybe some of you have been to that community, especially if you've come on short-term teams with Life in Abundance. And these people live in a semi-arid area that is very prone to water shortage, to food shortage. And um, we were attracted really to work in this community in the first time because when we went and we were visiting with the local churches that are strategically placed in this community, they began to tell us that they were getting poorer and poorer. And their main problem was food security. Um, they would harvest their grain uh, during the short rain span, and uh, once they have their grain, the middlemen would come and buy it from them at throwaway prices. And then during the dry season, they would bring almost like the same grain back and sell it to them at very high prices. And they were finding themselves selling land, uh, selling whatever they had. Um, school fees became... Uh, not a priority at all. So children were staying home so that they can survive. Food security was such a big problem. Our question to them was, why should you sell to the middlemen? And uh, we realized they didn't have a choice. If they don't sell the food to the middlemen, it spoils because of weevils. Uh, there, it was a place that was invested with weevils, so whatever you kept uh, would just go bad. So the safer thing would be to sell it, and then you buy it back. So after some discussions and they had gone through the training, they decided the best thing then they can do is to have grain silos. And uh, they would store their grain during the harvest. And during the, the dry season, they would be able to take their grain out and, uh, and use it without needing to buy at the high prices. But we also proposed to them, if we gave you a $500 uh, amount, would you be able then to almost like form a co-op 
um, based in the church. Build this silo in the church and it becomes like a community silo where you're not only storing your grain, but you are asking your neighbors uh, to sell your grain to you to fill up the whole silo. And then you'll be the one to sell to the neighbors. You're keeping it within the community and you're selling it at, at a price that the community can afford. Almost like the church becoming a solution to the most felt need in that community, the food security. So they went forward with that. They implemented the grain silos. And we hadn't actually realized how much impact they, we had had through that program. Because after the three years, we felt they were stable. Uh, they formed um, their groups. And we stepped back and left them alone to continue owning their own development and going the way the Lord would lead them. So the researchers went back to this community and they found stories, stories like the story of Joshua and his vegetable farm and, and evidence of what that ripple effect had happened because Joshua was not one of the people that we had trained. Um, he was actually somebody who was trained by the initial people that we had trained and he had come up with ideas of how he can sustain that food security. The other thing that they found when they went into this community was in reference to the $500 that we had given them. These people had kept records, and now they had $10,000 um, in their bank account uh, in, this, in this community co-op. They also had $20,000 worth investments, um, investments of silos, investments of loans that they had given to other churches that they had trained and food security was a story of the past in this, in this community. I think what really encouraged us most was the level the churches had grown, um, how people had uh, become members of the churches, but that also this community had begun to think of other needs like schools, and they had established like, kindergartens in the schools. They were beginning to have more development now. Um, they had a clinic, so just things that they could not even look at because they were so blinded uh, by the food security. The other story is about Makato. Makato is a community in the slums of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And what attracted us to partner with this community in the first place was the high prevalence of street children. Uh, the churches came together and they opened a drop-in center, and together over a three-year period, we discipled a cohort of 250 children, uh, vulnerable children. We modeled rehabilitation. Uh, we modeled development, education, giving them skills and uh, economic activities that they could be involved in. Uh, we helped families to take in these children and uh, worked with the families through microenterprise so they can sustain the children they, they had taken in. And uh, the people who were doing the study went back to this community. And they found that the initial beneficiaries, um, the street children, had truly been transformed and become transformers. Uh, they found some of the street children had become worship leaders in the churches. Uh, they found one of the street boys was a biology teacher in a, in a neighboring high school. Um, street children had gotten married, were raising families. Uh, but above all, that the church had developed several satellite street children ministries emulating uh, what we had modeled. Actually, the Ethiopia government recognized the success of this program and gave a national award 
for this strategy as far as work with orphans and vulnerable children. The study report concluded with three points, and I will quote first, uh, the community work we facilitate continues to flourish even after we have left. And then second, in all the sites these researchers visited, uh, there was no question that the people were engaged in effective, transformative ways to bring change to their own communities. And uh, the researchers said over and over they had in their own words that the people's eyes had been opened. And then lastly, they concluded to achieve this transformational change, a holistic model of development is essential. Uh, the components of the model work together, addressing the whole person, and none can be isolated to have that impact. Um, we cannot just go in with a medical care, and we cannot just go in with a microenterprise, we cannot just go in with one aspect of that. It's the integrated approach, keeping the church in the center, that achieves that transformation. They say the interdependencies were evident across all the sites. And um, I would wish for us to just go more into that, but I just encourage you to look up that study on our website. I just read some of the stories and just see what the researchers said, because I think they speak so much uh, to the kingdom approach of development, the kingdom approach of helping the poor and the vulnerable, of being involved in a way that we can serve uh, with impact. So several minutes ago, I had promised to share what this model is like, so let me just take the next few minutes to outline what it's about. We go into a community, and we start with prayer walking. Um, we walk in the community. We also walk around it. And in that walking, we are asking God, what is your agenda for this community? Um, what do you want to see here so that it can bring you worship? And then we bring together people of peace, um, people that we meet in that community, um, church leaders, people who are strategically placed, and we have a vision seminar. In the vision seminar, we are telling them, really, your mandate is to bring a change. Um, you are called to be salt and light. Uh, we are here to help you fulfill that. Uh, we are here to help you become obedient. So that in the very beginning, it's not us coming to do the work, or it's not uh, us coming with the idea. We are helping them as a church to become obedient to their calling in that community. And then soon after that, together we do a participatory baseline survey of the community so that they can see the needs. And uh, we are outlining what are the felt needs and what are the priority needs and how can we meet them, that joint decisions are being made from that very beginning. Together we go through a training, usually a training for 10 days, and we are doing these trainings now in our training center in Jamaica, we're also doing the trainings in our training center in Kenya and equipping not only people we work with, but organizations and other leaders in this model. And then together we begin the initial project. For Makueni, the initial project was let us deal with the food security. 
uh, so that now they can go on to meet the other needs. Uh, for Makata, it was like, let's see, what can we do about the street children? And then from there, they can do the, the other needs. And then the interventions begin to follow. Uh, as they address the most priority needs, they begin to continue uh, empowered in development, but also affirmed that as a church, uh, they can have an impact. It's really when they begin to take off, when they begin to make decisions without consulting us, uh, that we realize our work is done and we need to be out of the way so that they can carry it forward with their own development. We've realized once we keep the church in the center, uh, the model really has four buckets, as it were, that we would address. There's a community health bucket, and it could be clinics, and we have several clinics in the countries where we work with. It could be education, and it's really establishing kindergartens, or some places like in South Sudan, where there's a need for a primary school and establishing that in partnership with the church. The economic empowerment is so vital because it's really what uh, cuts off the chains of dependency. It's what empowers these people to, to own their own health or to own their own development. And then the social engagement, which works with the leaders, with the orphans and vulnerable children, with the social settings that continue to put these people um, in that hall, uh, holding them back from accomplishing their full development. We are not a relief agency, and we don't just work with a couple of projects. We are focused on the, the holistic development, uh, not just to bring relief, but to allow the efforts that we are involved in to attain that sustainable development. Uh, we, we care about that long term, and we want to stay focused on just the poor and the vulnerable because that's, that's who we are called to. But we are also focused to see that there's lasting change, um, both at the personal level uh, and that there's local ownership of these development solutions so that they are not attributed to us. Um, I feel there's no better way to accomplish that whole personal approach unless we do it through the local church. Uh, because the local church is placed in such a way that they can target their community, they are members of that community, and truly they are the, the real change agent uh, in that community. It also, uh, most importantly, protects us from gaining glory. Um, it protects us from becoming prideful. It protects us from beginning to think that we are the solution. Um, it empowers the people that we serve with. I just realized it really is Isaiah 61, um, implementing the good news to the poor, but also implementing it in such a way that the, at the end of that, uh, Christ is worshipped. These people become worshippers of God, other than worshippers of organizations or even missionaries. So this has become the whole philosophy of ministry, and uh, we have been involved in now 12 countries in Africa. Uh, we work in Egypt, uh, both North and South Sudan. Um, we work in Eritrea, Djibouti, uh, Somalia. Uh, we are involved in Ethiopia, in Kenya, the Lakes region, Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and Haiti and Jamaica. And uh, I, I just pause and I'm thankful to say, God is so good that he arrested me in 1999. And, um, and I just think back and ask myself, where would I be if he hadn't woken me up? I probably, 
probably would still be in that, in that community in Ethiopia. I probably would just be serving the 5,000 lepers, maybe with a, with a clinic or a hospital or an orphanage, um, probably totally burned out with no joy of ministry. And uh, just looking back to see, see what the Lord has done when he pushed me out of the, the seat and uh, took over the driver's seat and began to implement for himself what glorifies him. Uh, we have about more than 100 people working full-time with Life in Abundance in these different countries. We have discipled churches and churches over these last 21 years, and we almost feel like um, if we, we cease to exist as an organization, this would continue without, without needing us because people have been discipled and have taken over and are implementing development and owning it in sustainable ways. All right, I want to pause there and take questions, comments. Yes, please. You mentioned that um, you have a three-year involvement. So during those three years, are you involved in like financial inputs? Of course, you're doing training, you're doing discipline. And then around that three-year period, you start backing out as far as your financial inputs, as far as the local church, the local leaders are trained. So now you're maybe consulting them but they're, they're doing it? Is that, is that the strategy? That is the strategy. You got it very well. Yeah, we are involved in financial input. Um, if we model a project, uh, if we are modeling a project, um, like I said, the $500, we, we keep it minimal so that it doesn't become, they're not dependent on it, or they don't feel, that, well, we achieved it because we had the financial ability, but they cannot achieve it because they don't have the financial ability. Uh, we emphasize a lot on local resources, and we keep asking questions, what do you want to do, and how can you do it, and how will you do it when we are not there? Um, so we, we model things that they can replicate when we are not there. But yes, we are involved in, in training, in passing on skills, in working with them, encouragement, a lot of prayer. Uh, we actually do take Monday as our day of prayer and fasting, so we also model that that you cannot break the chains of injustice unless you're addressing them in prayer. Um, so it's, it's the whole approach that it's releasing them spiritually, physically, emotionally, and empowering them to gain confidence. And uh, it's amazing that when they gain confidence in their own personal development, um, they also gain confidence in their spiritual uh, calling. And they begin to own that too, to pass it on. And have you been able to do this model in a Muslim region in Africa? And have you learned anything different and worked in those communities as to maybe a Christian community? That's, that's a good question. He's asking if we have been able to do that in, uh, in Muslim communities. Uh, we actually have. Um, I saw Ali here. Okay, Ali is right there. Um, Please stand up, because if you'd like to know a little bit more of how to work in these Muslim communities, Ali was uh, our country director in Somalia. Uh, he's no longer there because of uh, security reasons, so he had to, to exit. But, yes, we've been involved in... Thank you, Ali. Uh, we've been involved in Muslim uh, areas. Uh, we've been involved in Somalia itself. That's, uh, yeah. And then also in Djibouti. Djibouti is actually more open uh, in that we, we can go in, it's 99% Muslim, uh, 
they welcome us because the Marines are based from there, so there's more um, international presence. But we are working with the underground church in Djibouti. So it's like the underground church now becomes the carrier of the model. And uh, they're working in the communities to be salt and light, to preach the gospel. So they are the church. And uh, they're, they're doing that same thing. Yes, yeah, so we've, we've seen similar success in, in those areas. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, it's, I can tell a story of how we've ended up in all those com- uh, countries, but also at the same time I can tell you of stories of how we've ended up in each of the particular communities. Um, we depend a lot on prayer. Um, we, we try not to lean on our own understanding. So sort of asking God, these communities, we are coming to an end. Um, we are raising funding that will enable us to go into the next community. What is the next community that, Lord, you are inviting us to? Um, and uh, once we identify those communities, really we define vulnerability as, as the way the Bible would define it. Um, the places where you would find widows, you would find orphans, and really the orphans would be the fatherless. And it could be they are fatherless. They may have one parent or have relatives, but they will be found in a higher concentration there. And then also foreigners, people without, without, without a place to call home, tend to congregate in those places. So it's places with low socioeconomic status. Um, so like in Kenya, we are in two of the big slums in Nairobi, uh, Kibera and Madare. Uh, in Kisumu, in the other places, really you would find life in abundance in the, the most forgotten lower areas, but also in, in some of the countries where there's war, there's strife, uh, there's darkness, uh, that we are serving the truly poor and vulnerable. We also get a lot of invitation, like if churches realize we are working in this district, uh, they begin to approach us, like, can you consider coming and working in our area next? So we, we, we have that almost like a waiting list of places where we could go, which is also um, a Macedonian call, like, yeah, those places where the door would be opened. Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, how do we conduct our baseline survey, and is that just limited to the church members, or is it outside that? Um, the baseline survey, we keep it very basic, uh, because we want to model to this church, if they go to the next community, how they will do that. Um, so there are some ways that we've identified work. Sometimes it's focus group discussions, and sometimes it's household visits, and we are simple telling of what are the key needs, and so it's, it's all those basic methods. And then we discuss them together, what, what were the findings. And sometimes we can review data, like uh, if there's a clinic there, like really what are the main things that are occurring in that clinic so that the interventions are, are relevant. Um, what was the second part of that question? Yes, do we focus on the whole community? Um, we actually work through the local church because it's a representation of the community. Um, 
that they come from within that community. So their neighbors may not be church members, and their next door, next door, next door neighbor may not be church members. So the church is being empowered to become salt and light, and you can only be light in the darkness. So it's the church really embracing their community, and we do so to the whole community, not just church members. And it's empowering the church to bring transformation in their whole community. So that, that geographical area. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes, we could. Um, some of the other three, the, the work that we had done with them had been a shorter time. So they were not, maybe with time they will become also missional, um, but it was like some of the places it was seven years later or, you know, 12 years later. But, you know, the, some of these were a shorter time. Uh, they may get there, but it, it was also being determined by... Uh, the government policies, uh, like some of the areas where the government policies are not that open, uh, they found it more difficult to go to different areas. Uh, places like Kenya where it's, it's more open, um, it was easier for them to, to move around. Okay, I'm looking for something to drink. <laughs> Sorry, any other questions, my sister, so we can share? <laughs> Comments, questions? Um, yeah, family practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was doing more like medical outreach. Yeah. <coughs> I do not see patients anymore. I went into, into public health, uh, so sort of took that route. And um, it's more like developing programs that are integrated. And um, in there, we have medical care as part of the package. Excuse me. So we still have clinics. Uh, we've actually got three clinics in Kenya. We've got three in Sudan. We've got a clinic in Haiti. But they're at the community level. Uh, at a place where the church can own and sustain and continue to do. Um, so limited clinical approach, as it were, uh, but more holistic. Did you get an MPH? Or I, I did an MPH, yeah, yeah. So did uh, family practice. Um, I got an MD and then went on to, to, do, to do an MPH. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, I think it was realizing that um, clinical medicine alone, as far as what God was calling me to, to serve the poor and the vulnerable, uh, would not have an impact. Uh, sort of, I can go practice medicine, take care of their surgical needs, uh, continue to work with them, but after I leave, uh, I wouldn't have helped them because they don't have money for medicine, they don't have um, a way to continue that development. So, uh, thank you. So it was, um, 
realizing that, that I, I had to equip myself further to look at the whole population and address uh, like a whole population church. Thank you. Yes, please. Um, yes, we do. Um, I'm just thinking of Djibouti and our work there. Uh, over the last over the last two years. There has been an, an, amazing, an amazing impact. Um, when initially we went into Djibouti, we, we had a word that God would raise the underground church to a point where they would be on national television and um, be able to advocate for Christ at a national level, which to us was, how can that be you know, in a Muslim country? Uh, so over the last few years, just looking at that growing over time, that the underground church is feeling equipped with the tools to do holistic transformation and do the spiritual part, that has been just increasing. And uh, there are baptisms almost every week uh, by the Red Sea, um, just making such impact. And so that's really growing. And the government has actually invited them to be doing programs on national television uh, to explain how they can do development that is meaningful to the people and sustained, sort of picking them as examples of, of that. So it's the things they highlight is you do it with joy, you do it with commitment. We are told you do home visits. When people come to the clinic, you go to their homes and you visit them and check on them what's happening. Uh, so they've just become a light in that community. So yes, there's continuing uh, impact, especially spiritual impact, even in the Muslim countries. I actually do think it's a very effective model in closed countries um, because the gospel now is, is packaged in that. <laughs> yes, please. The question is, you want to know if you heard correctly that this program is happening in some of the closed countries and if, how, how that works for the church to be in the center and if so, if there should be sec a security component in this. Correct. Okay. So we, once we identify the underground church and, um, you know, there's a strategy of even developing that relationship to a point that we can be trusted by the underground church and we can have our inroads. Um, so once we begin to work with that underground church, we are empowering them uh, in their persecuted status uh, to be able to reach their own uh, without endangering uh, themselves. So 
And that's why the involvement, their involvement in the baseline survey, their involvement in the strategies that they're going to use to reach their neighbors is very important because they know their context best. So some of the things they end up doing now in these closed countries is like, we're going to get a permit from the government. Actually, we are registered in these countries to do development work. So we are going to get a permit from the government to open a kindergarten, and this is just going to be for the destitute in this area. And we are going to be the teachers. We are also going to be the, the caregivers. So like as a team, as a church, underground church, they are the project implementers. Uh, so they're the ones interacting with the children. They're the ones who are helping their mothers to form groups for the micro-enterprise. And they're the ones who are helping them to succeed in choosing what businesses to do. And then uh, they begin to do the council. And relationships develop. They're visiting them in their homes. And then they begin to ask them, you know, what is, what is different about you? Uh, to a point now they can share the gospel and actually, most of the gospel is shared through prayer. You're praying for these people. Uh, you're with anointed feet. You're going in, into their homes. And then the Lord just begins to reveal himself to them. And they come to you uh, having seen a vision of you can, you can share the word of God with them. Uh, so it's helping them to, to gain a channel of entry into the, into the homes. Yes, please. Um, how did your, before you said you felt like you were just acting as a mom and a, and a wife um, before Christmas Eve 1999, how did that, like, what did the Lord do in your heart to shift that, to change that role for you? Uh, what it did to my heart to change that role? I think it was uh, realizing I can accomplish what, what I'm passionate about and what my heart is broken for in missions without me being the do-do-do person, uh, that I can multiply myself through the local church, and then in that way I can still fulfill my other responsibilities, uh, that it's, it's not going to be me playing hero and uh, doing everything by myself. It's going to be stepping back and developing more workers right there um, because the workers are needed there. Uh, yeah. For those who haven't seen it, if you go to the LIA booth, which happens to be over in the block, I strongly recommend that you get a copy of The Pursuit of His Calling, Lawrence's story of what happened. It's a one-night read. When you start, you're not going to go to sleep until you finish. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I just remember God talking to me about really writing this story. I, I used to journal a lot, and it was like, don't even edit your journals. Just present the things you struggled with as raw as they are, and I share them with, with others so that they can learn from your mistakes. So I just wanted to warn you that it's, uh, I feel vulnerable uh, in that book because I just share uh, who I was and who I am and how the Lord... Uh, rescued me from myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have five more minutes, uh, but uh, we can close here. Yes, please.
you know, I, I, can, I can just pull up that same example that we shared about McQueney. Um, we had given them the $500 initially as almost like their, their loan, um, their, invest, their initial investment. And they used that money to buy, to make, do the silo, but also buy grain. So that season now, when they bought the grain and they sold it, not at the level the middlemen were selling, but at a lower price, they made a profit, um, almost like three times uh, the 500. And uh, they were able to fill the silos again and uh, resell and then make another profit. So they realized with this profit, they can actually loan it out to other people with an, an interest. Like another group wants to do a silo, okay, we'll give you 500. You pay it back after your second season, and you pay it at, say, $750. Uh, so they began now to, to have these groups um, that are participating in that. Uh, and that's really the, the microloan. Uh, we keep it very basic. Uh, because we are dealing with, with the poor people, uh, people who don't even know how to, to manage income uh, or have never had an income for that matter. So uh, we take them through a training. There's a training we take them through. And then after the training, we're teaching them uh, how to take on initiatives, how to manage your profit. And they usually do it as a group so that they can hold each other accountable and then invest in that. So it's really micro-loans that would be put in, in their hands. Uh, not necessarily members of the local church, but they are, mem they are people that the local church is working with. Yeah. Uh, here's an example. Like in, in Haiti, we have, uh, the church has begun a school. And they have people in the community bringing their children there. It's more like a daycare and then a standard one, standard two. So they have uh, people who cannot afford other schools bringing their children there. And they have uh, teachers from the church who are you know, uh, donating their services there to care for the children. And there's a fee that they pay to be in the school. It's, it's little compared to the other places, but they are paying uh, so, but some of the children cannot afford to pay that school fees because they come from the destitute families. So they put together now these people who cannot afford school fees, uh, and that forms a group that the church wants to empower so that they can afford school fees and care for their children. And then that's where now the microloan goes, that these women are trained, uh, they're given the microloan, and the church walks with them to identify what is going to be their investment. And like for Haiti, they are going to do, they're doing a poultry uh, project and uh, beginning to sell the eggs, making a profit, paying for their children so that their, their dignity as parents is given back. Uh, but then now after some time, they begin to pay back to the church. And then the church can identify another group that they work with. So it enables the church to be an agent that's bringing transformation. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Um, I'm going to invite uh, somebody to pray. Um, I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking across to Jonas. Jonas, please come up and uh, close us in prayer. Jonas is from Ethiopia. 
um, he was actually working as one of our program persons in the initial work. So in setting up the street children work in those times of uh, prayer, in setting up communities, uh, he was working with us there. And then he and his family relocated to the, to the U.S., and we, we snatched him again. So he's our, our grants writer uh, based here in the U.S. So I'm just going to invite him to, to pray for us. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. okay, let's pray. Mm-hmm. Dear Father God, um, thank you so much for this day. And for, thank you for uh, this gathering. And thank you for Dr. Florence for sharing uh, what you have done through LIA. And uh, we are so much thankful for the calling that you have given for her and for the team and for the rest of the team here. Father, thank you so much for everything that we have heard this morning, this, this afternoon. And thank you so much that you have done uh, such an amazing thing through NIA. And we are so much thankful for uh, the communities that have been impacted by, this, uh, by the work that you have done for us. Father, uh, as we continue the, uh, this afternoon and tonight, just talk to us and just uh, help us to listen to you. Father, thank you so much for everyone here, and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. So I encourage you, please stop at our booth, um, get a copy of the book, but also get a, uh, a pair of slippers, a pair of sandals uh, from one of our projects, from one of the, the projects we do for micro-enterprise. So please do visit our booth, Life in Abundance. Thank you.